thank you for the, the gift for our family. We appreciate it. We love our church and our church family. We are glad to get to be here for another year, another Christmas with our church family. Now we're in study of the Sermon on the Mount, titled The Way of Jesus. Now I was thinking about the passage we're going to look at today. And I, as I was thinking about it, I realized that if we're not careful, we can make two what I would call critical mistakes about the Christian life. The first mistake is about the goal of the Christian life. Unfortunately, for many people, they feel that the goal of the Christian life is just to get to heaven. Our job is to get saved. We believe in Jesus. And then we just kind of wait for him to take us to glory. But the goal of the Christian life is not to get to heaven. The goal of the Christian life is to be like Jesus. Right? Our goal is, as followers, as disciples of Jesus Christ, is that through the grace and the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, to be as much like Jesus as humanly possible as we live on this earth. And the second mistake that we make is to limit what it means to be like Jesus. Too often we limit what it means to be like Jesus, to maybe go to church, to read our Bible, to pray, maybe to give a little bit, to have a, and live a, a moral life. And certainly those are part of what it means to be like Jesus, but it's not all that there is. For those of us who believe in Jesus and have committed our lives to being disciples of Jesus, we are to be like Jesus in our attitudes and our actions, our reactions, our values our priorities, our speech, our love, and in every other way. We are to pattern our life after the way Jesus lived His life and after the way Jesus taught that we are to live. And that's where things get complicated. Because the way Jesus lived and the way Jesus taught to live, it's contrary to culture. It doesn't fit in with how the world says we ought to act. But not only that, it really, if we're honest, it doesn't always fit in for the way that we want to act. In our very nature, we push back about living like Jesus. Because living like Jesus, it is hard. And it requires a, you'd almost call it a radical level of commitment in order to be like Jesus. But I don't want to call it a radical commitment because that makes it sound like it's a, a next level thing. And it's really not. Right? There's not, I, I've believed in Jesus and I wait to go to heaven. But then while I'm here, I can have this radical commitment to Jesus if I want to. And then I can strive to be like him. That, that's really not what we find in Scripture. Rather in Scripture, what we find is we believe in Jesus. And since we've believed in Jesus, we, we commit ourselves to His teaching. We commit ourselves to be as much like Him as we can. What we're talking about in the Sermon on the Mount, what we're going to talk about today, that while it's different than culture, and while our flesh pushes back against it, and, and I've even titled it Radically Christ-like, it's really not radical. It's really not next level stuff. This is basic I believe in Jesus and I'm going to heaven Christianity. This is what we're all expected to strive to attain. With that said, let's look at what we're talking about today. Open your Bible to Matthew 5. 38 is where we're going to start. I'm going to read the rest of Matthew 5. That's page 737 if you've got a pew Bible. When you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand on the reading of God's Word. 
Matthew 5 and 38. You have heard it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, not to resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asked you and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. You have heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your father in heaven, for he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good and he sends Rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even tax collectors do the same. And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so. Therefore, you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. The title of the message is Radically Christ-like. Let's pray. Our Father, we love you. You are great and awesome. You are worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. And Father, what we're looking at today is hard. I mean, there's just no getting around it. But honesty compels me to say that my natural tendency is not to do any of the things I just read. And yet this is the life that Christ has called me and and called all of us to live. Help us today as we look at this. Help us to come to the word with a sense of submission to the authority of Christ. Help us come to the word with a sense of the fact that these are the words of Jesus, our Savior. And if we have committed our lives to him, this is the way we are to live. And that our natural tendency to push back against this, it's not That doesn't make it okay to reject it. We can't dismiss His teachings as saying, well, that's just not the way I'm wired. For Lord, we are born again. We are rewired when we believe on Jesus Christ. So today, let Your Holy Spirit crush our flesh as it seeks to push us against the Word of Christ. Let the Holy Spirit push out the the arguments from the world as to why we shouldn't live this way. The Holy Spirit silenced the devil as he tries to steal the good seed and blind our minds to the truths of the words of Christ. Fill me with your spirit today and give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech and help me not to be a hindrance in any way to what you once said. Have your way in all of our lives and let us leave here determined to be like Jesus in all things. We ask this in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. But you may be seated. Now in verse 20, Jesus says that the righteousness, that our righteousness, it must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees, or we will never see the kingdom of heaven. Now, the righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, it is both received and lived. It is received by faith in Jesus. And then having received righteousness from Jesus, disciples begin to live righteously through Jesus. And one of the ways this righteousness is seen is how we deal with people. 
particularly in this instance, how we deal with difficult people. Now, Jesus contrasts the righteousness of the kingdom with the righteousness of the Pharisees in the saying, you have heard it was said, but I say unto you. Now, when he said you have heard it was said, he's sort of saying according to popular opinion, according to culture. And when he says, but I say unto you, he's saying contrary to popular opinion or contrary to the culture you live in. Today, Jesus is saying to us that contrary to popular opinion, getting even is never righteous. Contrary to popular opinion, merely loving those who love you isn't enough. These are hard sayings. They go against the the natural grain of our lives and what is commonly accepted in society. And yet, despite how different they are, this is what Jesus said. And it is what it means to live out a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. So we have to learn to deal with them. We have to learn, what does this mean? How do I begin to take it and put it into practice in my life? And what I want to do today is we're just going to kind of go through here verse by verse, just talking about what Jesus said in each verse and then see what we need to do about it. Now, in verse 38, Jesus said, you have heard it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now, that was Moses law. And it was given to limit revenge. Right in the days when God gave that law to Moses, people tended to settle their scores violently and with extreme prejudice. They didn't get even, they got ahead. If you killed my cow, I'd kill your herd. You knocked out my tooth, I would knock out your teeth. But this, of course, didn't settle things. Vengeance doesn't end anything. Vengeance merely perpetrates more violence, more anger, more problems as time goes on. So God tells Moses to put a limit on it. You kill my cow, I get to kill one of your cows. You knock out one of my teeth, then I get to knock out one of your teeth. It's a limit on how much can be done. But then Jesus comes and He limits it even more. But I tell you, not to resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. I mean, that's hard. Now, we do need to understand what Jesus was saying. But is he telling us that we're to be, if someone just comes along and violently assaults us, we're just to take it? I I don't think that's what it is. Not because that's contrary to how I feel, although that is contrary to how I feel. But the context of the culture, the idea of a slap in Jesus' day, it wasn't so much about an assault as much as it was an insult. When you slapped someone or you backhanded someone, it wasn't really to hurt them, to so to speak. It was really more to humiliate them. It was to demean them. It was to let them know they were inferior to you. Now, the closest equivalent to our culture to something like that would be someone were to spit in our face. Same sort of thing, to humiliate, to demean, to say, I'm better than you. Now, if someone were to just walk up and spit in your face, how would you respond? Well, Jesus says that's not the way you're supposed to respond. 
He doesn't limit revenge and retaliation to getting even. He eliminates revenge and retaliation altogether. As believers in Jesus Christ and disciples of Jesus, revenge and retaliation are not words we live by. Rather, redemption and reconciliation. If someone insults us or demeans us, the disciple of Jesus Christ is not to insult and demean back. We are to turn the other cheek. We are to let that slide. We are not to try to show them that they can't treat us like that. We'll talk more about that in a little bit. Now look at what he says in verse 40. If anyone wants to sue you, take away your tunic. Let him have your cloak also. Now the Jewish cloak was a great blanket-like outer garment that was worn during the day and usually used as a blanket at night. The average Jew only had one of these because they were expensive. Since they were so important, it was against the Mosaic law to take away and keep the outer coat. So even if someone owed you a great debt, you could for maybe a period of time during the day take away that cloak until they went to get the money to bring it back. But even if they did not have the money and they came back without it, you were still supposed to give them that cloak back. It could not be taken away to collect on a debt. So the picture is, it was their right to the cloak. In the Jewish culture... That cloak was a right they had. No one had a right to take it away. And yet Jesus says if someone wants to take it away, you give it to them. The disciple of Jesus must be willing to sacrifice his or her rights because of Jesus and their commitment to him. Again, that's a hard teaching. We live in a world that is obsessed With our rights. It's not much of a stretch to say that rights could be an idol that are worshipped in our culture. And in the name of our rights, I have a right to do it. Frivolous lawsuits are filed every day. In the name of I have a right to do it, we demand our place in a checkout line. In the name of our rights, we make sure no one takes our turn at the four-way stop. In the name of our rights, we're rude to our waitress because the food was cold or the service is slow. In the name of our rights, we we fuss and we fight and we treat each other horribly over the most insignificant issues. So what does the disciple of Jesus do? We give up our rights to our rights. We may have a right To act that way. But we don't demand it. And we don't take it. We live differently because of Jesus. Then he goes on in verse 41. And whoever compels you to go one mile. Go with him two. Now this is tough because what Jesus is talking about here is basically government oppression. At this point the the Romans had totally conquered the Jewish people. The Jews were in total subjection to the Roman conquerors. And the Romans, in fact, had such control that they had placed their own leaders 
in Israel and pretty much kept the Jews out of places of significant leadership so they would not have influence on the people. An example of that is the high priest. According to the Mosaic law, the high priest was appointed for life. But the Romans would not allow a high priest to serve for life because if a person served as a high priest for that long, they would develop a significant religious following. And so they made them change out the high priest every so many years to prevent any Jewish leader from wielding too much power within the people. And since the Romans conquered them and made all the rules, they had a law that said the centurions could require the Jews to do a lot of things at their command. Right, A Roman soldier could walk by and if you were a Jew could say, do this. And according to Roman law, you had to do it. At the command of a centurion, a Jew could be forced to work, to give up food, or to give up a work animal. Now, part of the work that centurions were known to do would be to force a Jew to carry the centurion's load. Right? Imagine, or, or remember Simon of Cyrene, in the exam, when Jesus was crucified, what happened? Simon is there, and the centurions tell him, you take up his cross and you carry it to the hill. That was legal. That was the way it was done. Now, the way that it was done was just basically here. Here's my pack. You carry it. Now, according to the law, they could only be forced to carry it for a mile. But the Jews, the Jews were a very proud people. And they were especially proud when it came to national pride. To be conquered was bad enough. To be conquered by pagans was even worse. But to be forced to carry the gear of an occupying army was utterly humiliating. They hated having to do this. Jesus told them not only to submit to what the Romans wanted them to do, but to go even further than what the law demanded. It can only make you carry it one mile, but when they do it, you show them you're different because of me and you carry it too. Can you imagine how that must have sounded to the Jews who heard Jesus say this originally? I mean, imagine, imagine if Canada conquered America. Canadian soldiers could come along and compel you to carry their hockey sticks and pictures of Justin Bieber for a mile. How would we feel about that? We would hate it. And yet Jesus says, not only do it. Do it without griping, do it without complaining, do it without resisting, and go above and beyond all that you could legally be made to do. Well, they didn't want to do it for one mile, much less two. But Jesus said they were to sacrifice their right to do what they prefer. They were to sacrifice their right to comfort. They were to sacrifice to do what Jesus wanted them to do. Not because the Romans deserved this kind of preferential treatment. They didn't. They were not kind in any way. They were cruel and harsh dictators who punished those they conquered severely and, without, and with extreme prejudice. They were to render this kind of service because that's what Jesus wanted them to do. It's what Jesus expected of His disciples then. And it's what Jesus expects of His disciples now. 
Verse 43, Jesus says, You've heard it was said you shall love your enemies, or love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, besides me, who thinks that makes real good sense? Right? I mean, that's a, yes, that's the, of everything we've looked at so far, that makes the most sense to me on a natural level. Love those who love you, hate your enemies. Yes. But Jesus says, no. Love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. That makes no sense. On a natural level, that makes no sense to me. But not just, I would say just my natural flesh. Probably doesn't make sense to you either. right? It doesn't make sense to our culture, does it? I mean, our, our culture is filled with people who will love those who are of the same political party than them, but hate those who are of a different one, isn't it? Love those who are of the same nationality, but hate those who are of a different one. Love those who have the same religion that they do, but hate those who have a different one. Love those of the same skin color, but hate those that have a different skin color. And if I was going to really meddle, I would say love those that have the same sexual orientation, but hate those that have a different one. That's what our culture says to do. That that's what we're, we're trained, that's what we're taught to do. But Jesus says, no, no, that's not the way we're supposed to do it. As His disciples, we are to be radically different than the world around us. We are to love those that we would be tempted to consider our enemies. We would love, we should love those who curse us. Do good to those who go out of their way to make sure we know they hate us. And pray for those who actively work against us in life. Why on earth would we do something like that? Verse 45. That you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For He makes His Son to rise on the evil and on the good. And He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. We do it to, so that we can be like Jesus. That's a huge part of, really, that, that is what it means to be Christ-like. It is to be like Jesus. Even the worst sort of people, that, that's the idea behind tax collectors in, these, in, the, in verses 45 through 48. Even tax collectors love those who love them. Right? Even the worst sort of sinners of our culture love those who love them. Even those who are exceedingly hateful and wicked in our world love those who love them. They, they do good for those who are like them. They do good for those who do good to them. They help those who help them. Everybody does that. So just doing that isn't being different. Just doing that isn't being anything special. Anything that stands out from the culture. So how do we stand out from a dark and an evil world? We act like our Father in heaven who makes His Son to rise on the evil and on the good. And He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. We do this knowing. We know 
We know that even the worst sort of sinners love people who love them. And we want to be like our Father in heaven. The world says, love those who are like you. Hate and mistreat those who are different from you. And Jesus says no. His disciples are to love the unlovable. They are to love those who are different from them. They are even to love those who actively oppose them. Because we want to be like Jesus. We want to be like our Father in heaven. I mean, that, that's tough. These are hard teachings. But these hard teachings, they don't end with Jesus. I mean, this isn't just one time we see this sort of an idea and we never hear about it again. Turn with me to Romans chapter 12, page 866. First look at Romans 12 and 14. We're just going to look at one verse, then we'll go to verse 17 of Romans 12. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. How are we to treat those who oppose us as Christians or oppose us as people who just don't like us? We're to bless them. Now, are they going to curse us? For sure. Are they going to malign our character? No doubt. Are they going to say hateful and horrible things about us? Yes. Do we return in kind? Do we act like they act? No. No, we do not. We bless instead of curse. Now look at verse 17. Repay no one evil for evil. I mean, that's pretty explicit. Right? Again, don't get even. Vengeance is something that believers in Jesus Christ are not supposed to do. Why? Because we are to have regard for good things in the sight of all men. Now, verse 17, I think that is significant in our discussion of revenge and retaliation. Because the reality is, any time we get revenge, any time we, we retaliate, there will be people who say, well, that was petty. That was, what a petty way to act. Why not just let something like that go? Why not just be the bigger person? And to be sure, people definitely expect that from us as followers of Jesus Christ. Every time a believer in Jesus Christ gets revenge on someone, the unbelieving world will look at that and say, so much for Jesus. So much for Jesus changing them. So much for being like the Christ they claim to worship. Now, my natural response is to say, who cares? Who cares what the world thinks? Who cares if the people think I'm petty? Who cares if the people don't understand why I'm acting the way I'm acting? But the answer for that is that Scripture cares. Paul cares. Jesus cares. The reality is the Apostle Paul agrees with those people who says that was petty. The Apostle Paul agrees with those people who say you should have been the bigger person. The Apostle Paul agrees with those people who said 
Surely Jesus should make a better difference in your life than that. The Apostle Paul is saying, be careful not to do anything in the sight of an unbelieving world that would bring shame and reproach on the name of Christ. Something like, get even. Verse 18 is one of the better verses in all of the Bible. If it's possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. I like all the qualifiers on that. Right? As, as mu- if it's possible, as much as lies with you, live peaceably with all men. Now, does that mean that there are some people we can't live peaceably with because it's not possible? Yeah, unfortunately, that is what it means. There are people in the world who like to stir up strife. There are people in the world who like to, to steal peace in a workplace and cause dissension and problems all the time. And there's nothing we can do about that. We can't make those people be peaceable. But what Paul's saying here is this. We need to be sure it's not our fault. We need to be sure we aren't adding to it. right? We need to be sure that if there's a lack of peace in wherever we are, that when people get to the root cause of the lack of peace, they don't find us. Now, think about how that relates to retaliation and revenge. Does retaliation and revenge bring peace or perpetuate the strife? It perpetuates the strife. It's one of the reasons we let go of it and we don't get even. Because I know that if Michael does something to me and I do something to him, he's not going to go, oh, well, that's what I deserved. I guess I'm going to end it here. Instead, he's going to say, well, now it's on. And then he's going to do something. And then I'm going to do something. And it's just going to go on and on And on. So as much as possible. As much as depends on you. Don't be the source of the strife and the conflict. Wherever you are. Now look at verse 19. Beloved do not avenge yourselves. But rather give place to wrath. For it is written. Vengeance is mine. I will repay says the Lord. Here we're as disciples of Jesus. We are just flat out commanded. Not to seek revenge and retaliation. Instead of seeking to get even, we are to trust God to bring whatever vengeance needs to be brought on the person who has harmed us or done something to us. Revenge and retaliation ultimately belong to God alone because He is the only one who can do it in a completely just way. You know, the reality is, you and I, no matter how just we think we are, how measured we think we are, Our vengeance is never an act of righteousness. Our getting even, our eye for an eye, is never an act that is righteous in the sight of God. Only God can act in vengeance and be righteous. So what we have to do is we have to leave it to Him. And it's a faith issue. Do I believe that God will avenge me if what was done to me deserves vengeance? Or do I believe that God will just leave me and leave me hanging out to dry? If I trust that God is who He says He is and He'll do what He says He'll do, I will not get even. I will leave it to God to do whatever needs to be done. If I don't trust God, that He is who He says He is and that He'll do what He says He'll do, 
then I will exact my eye for an eye and my tooth for a tooth. I once heard former pastor of the First Baptist Church here in town, Derek Cox, preach on this. And he said something that has always stuck with me. He said, if I hold a grudge, I don't trust the judge. If I hold a grudge and I get even, I do not trust the judge. But not only are we not to get even, look at verse 20. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Not only are we not supposed to get even, we're supposed to actively do good for the person that is doing evil against us. If they're hungry, we're supposed to feed them. If they're thirsty, we're supposed to give them something to drink. Again, I I can't speak for you, but for me, that is not my natural bent. As As a person, I am not a vengeance is mine, let God repay, says the Lord. Do good to those and give them food and give them something to drink. I'm really kind of an eye for an eye kind of a guy at my heart. And my natural wiring, this is really hard. Now, I do like the last part of the verse. For in so doing, you'll heap coals of fire on his head. I had a friend tell me once that that was his actual favorite part of the verse. Because when he would do things, do nice things for those that had done mean things to him... He liked to picture the hot coals being placed on their heads. And when he thought about that, it made him smile. And he did say he wasn't sure that was the right attitude, but it did help him to act the right way. Now, there are all kinds of things that heap coals of fire on their head may mean. It could mean that they, as we do good to them, as they're evil, as they do wrong, it makes them feel guilty about how they've acted. It's possible. It could mean that it causes them to lose honor in front of others as they're mean. While we're good. It could mean that it angers them. Because they can't get the kind of response from us that they they want. It could also mean that they begin to wonder and think about the God that has caused us to respond in such a way. That has caused us to be so different than them. Regardless of what burning coals could mean. The words before it definitely mean we are not to return evil for evil. But we are to return good for evil. And then in verse 21, Paul says, do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, when that verse is just completely disconnected from the context, that's a powerful verse. But in the context, it is even more powerful. How are we overcome by evil, according to Paul? In this context, it's not when we commit adultery or we go out and murder someone. In this context, we are overcome by evil when we get even. We are overcome by evil when what other people do to us causes us to act like they acted. Their evil has overcome the good of Christ within us and it has made us to become like them in our attitudes, our actions, our reactions, our speech, our values, our priorities. Evil wins. Evil always wins when we respond with the same kind of attitudes and actions that we encounter. On the other hand, we overcome evil by not responding with vengeance and continuing to do good, particularly good, to those who are harassing us. That is how we overcome evil.
Again, isn't that different than our world? I mean, our world is all about overcoming evil with greater evil. Overcoming harm with greater harm. Overcoming meanness with even more meanness. And yet, the disciple of Jesus is to be radically different than the world around them. But this isn't just teaching from Scripture. This is the example of Jesus. Turn with me to Matthew 26, page 758. Matthew 26, we'll start in verse 47. Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. He has just finished praying. And here's what it says. Well, verse 46. Rise, let us be going, my betrayers at hands. While he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve with a great multitude, and with a great multitude with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now his betrayer had given them a sign, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him. Immediately, he went to Jesus and he said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Now, Jesus is being betrayed by one of his twelve closest friends. He had personally picked this man to be an apostle. He had spent the last three, three and a half years investing in this man's life. Teaching him. Being good to Him. Showing Him the way of the kingdom and what it meant to be righteous. And yet for 30 pieces of silver, He is betrayed by one of His closest friends. Not just betrayed, but betrayed with a kiss. Right? There is a a level of, that's worse. It wasn't just He walked out and He said, there's the guy, we hate him, get him. But he walked up to him. He pretended to be a friend. He, he hugged him close with a, the hug and the kiss of friendship. You are my friend. You are the one that I love. And meanwhile, that was secretly a sign to those who were going to take Jesus, beat him, kill him. Now, all that's about to happen to Jesus, it is an unjust arrest. He has done nothing wrong. It is what we might call a kangaroo court. The goal of what's about to happen is to see him turned over to the Romans and to be crucified. Jesus is well aware of this. And how does he respond? Look at verse 50. But Jesus said to him, Friend, why have you come? They laid hold. They came and laid hands on Jesus and took him. Jesus, he could have... Gave Peter a sock in the mouth. I mean, he's God and he has God powers. He could have smote Judas to death right there on the spot. I mean, there's any number of things that he could have done. But what did he do? He, you, You could almost say he turned the other cheek, couldn't you? He didn't do evil to the one who had done evil to him. He just let it happen. He He sacrificed... His rights as a free man. Much less, not to even mention his rights as as God. So that he would be taken and be executed. Peter responds, and really, 
Peter's response is often described as a rash response. But, but let's think about what Peter does. Suddenly, one of those who was with Jesus stretched out his hand. It's Peter. It doesn't say in Matthew, but we know from the other Gospels. Drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Before we conclude that Peter's response was rash and, and kind of out of the bounds of what we might do, let's consider. First, his friend and leader is being unjustly arrested. He is about to lose his rights, his freedom, and his life. And Peter has a legally obtained weapon that he has a legal right to carry. And so he pulls it out and he strikes at the guy. Strikes at his head to try to kill him. And misses. And clips his ear off. Peter responded by defending his friend. I mean, that's not such a hot-headed, irrational response at all, is it? It's what most of us would do. But notice how Jesus again responds. Verse 52. But Jesus said to him, put your sword in its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot now pray to my father and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? But how then could scripture be fulfilled that it must happen thus? Jesus tells Peter to put up his weapon. In fact, in, in Luke's account of this, it tells us that Jesus even heals the guy's ear. Jesus isn't being taken as a victim here. He doesn't need Peter to defend him. If he wanted to, he could summon more than 12 legions of angels to defend him. Now, a Roman legion had between 4,000 and 6,000 soldiers in it. So if an angelic legion is anything like a Roman legion, that's just a lot of angels that could be summoned at his desire to come and defend him. More than 12 legions of angels could certainly do more than one fisherman with a sword. But Jesus did not call for 12 legions of angels. Instead, he surrendered to the will of the Father. He gave up his rights. He gave up his freedom. And in the end, he gave up his life to accomplish the mission the Father had given him. And we would look at that and say, well, yeah, but that's Jesus. And we're not Jesus. That's different. Yet this incident had such an impact on Peter's life that he would later say, Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. For he has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. And I wonder, arm yourself. I wonder if that's an intentional wording to be different. And before he had armed himself with a sword, but now it's to arm yourself with a mindset. Jesus suffered. So arm yourself with that same mindset and be willing to suffer for the sake of Christ as well. We are to have the same mind and attitude of Jesus. Since he suffered for us, we're to arm ourselves with that attitude and be willing to, to suffer. Now, the world tells us to avoid suffering at all costs. That's why we get even. That's why we don't turn the other cheek. That's why we don't go the extra mile. That's why we hate those who hate us and only love those who love us. Jesus says, that's not right. Peter says, that's not right. 
Jesus demonstrates that's not right. We are to be like Jesus even to the point of suffering for being like Jesus. Now that doesn't mean we seek suffering. Certainly we never seek to be hurt or anything along those lines. But it does mean that when our devotion to Christ or our following the example of Christ is leading us down a path of suffering, we do not turn away. We follow Jesus. We emulate Jesus even if that means suffering along the way. This suffering, this devotion, it'll be lived out when we choose to do what Jesus said to do. That is devotion to Jesus. That's the righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. That's what it means to be like Jesus. So the key truth is that disciples of Jesus are meant to be like Jesus This requires a radical devotion to Jesus. Let me share two excellent and challenging quotes that relate to what we've talked about today. The first says, we are addicted to winning. Who doesn't want to win after all? We want to win the fight. We must win the argument. We need to win the debate. Jesus and Paul seem to be directing us to true winning. He wants us to win the soul of the other person when we're interact the, the soul of the person we are interacting with, not just the debate, the argument, or the fight. We settle far too soon for the smaller win. And he goes on and he says, "What matters more to us that we successfully put others in their place, or that we're known to love well?" That we win culture, war, culture wars with carefully constructed arguments and political power plays. Or that we win hearts with humility, truth, and love. God have mercy on us if we do not love well because all that matters to us is being right and winning arguments. Truth and love go together. Truth and love must go together. Peter wrote these words into a climate in which Christians were being routinely criticized, marginalized, and persecuted. In your hearts, honor Christ as Lord as holy, being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason of the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Slanderers and persecutors put to shame. Through gentleness and respect. What we've talked about today is a huge part of what it means to be like Jesus. Now, if we don't want to be like Jesus, then nothing we've talked about today really has to matter to us in life. But if we want to be like Jesus, then we have to let this matter. We have to let these words and the example of Jesus weigh on our hearts and on our minds and on our lives. We have to wrestle with these words and this example and what they mean to us on a practical daily level. And as we wrestle with these words and what they mean to us on a practical daily level, there are at least two realities that we have to face. One, that we must submit to the Lordship of Jesus, that I must submit to the Lordship of Jesus. Jesus is Lord. That's not just a snazzy saying. That's the reality for all people, but especially those of us who call ourselves disciples of Jesus. Submitting to Jesus as Lord 
means in part that we surrender ourselves to follow his example and his teaching. Now, submission is tricky in that it's not submission until we don't want to do it. But in the moment of not wanting to let an insult go, in the moment of wanting of not wanting to give up my rights, in the moment of not wanting to do something I don't feel I should have to do or don't feel comfortable doing, in the moment of not wanting to love someone who I want to hate, in the moment of not wanting to be kind to someone who seems to hate me, in that moment I surrender to Jesus. I surrender to the Lordship of Jesus by choosing peace over revenge. I surrender to the Lordship of Jesus by giving up my rights. I surrender to the Lordship of Jesus by doing more than expected. I surrender to the Lordship of Jesus by choosing love over hate. I surrender to the Lordship of Jesus by choosing kindness over retaliation. Disciples of Jesus are meant to be like Jesus. And that requires what seems like a radical devotion to Jesus that is seen in submission to the Lordship of Jesus. And then I must repent when I fail. Realistically, this is not a room filled with people that have kept this example perfectly. Realistically, this is not a room full of people who are going to go out of here today and forever keep this example perfectly. Now, this doesn't, shouldn't cause us to have a fatalistic mindset where we say, well, I'm going to fail, so I shouldn't try. Neither does it mean we beat ourselves up as worthless excuses for disciples of Jesus. Rather, what it means is we try. And if we fail, we repent of it. We confess it. And then we move on and we try to do better the next time. But one of the aspects of repentance and confession, it is accepting responsibility. And this is huge. Accepting responsibility means that we call it what it is. Sin. When we refuse to turn the other cheek and we take our eye for an eye, that's sin. That's not a mistake. That's not a character flaw. That's sin. When we hate those who hate us, that's not a mistake. That's not a character flaw. That's sin. And it must be confessed in that way. If we are not calling it sin, we are not accepting responsibility for what we've done. We're laying the blame on our raising. We're laying the blame on our care, on the, the way that we, just who we are. We're laying the blame on the other person for being so hard to deal with. But none of that matters to the disciple of Jesus. We have been rewired when we were born again. We have the Spirit of the living God inside of us. And we can do all things through Christ. Including turn the other cheek. Give up our cloak. Go two miles. Give to Him who asks. Love those who hate us. Do good to those who persecute us. We can do that. And every time we don't, it is a sin. And that's how we have to deal with it. Now, that too is contrary to culture. It's contrary 
to our sinful nature. But we cannot let culture and our sinful nature tell us what's right. Culture and our friends will tell us all of the reasons why acting contrary to what we've talked about today is okay. They will explain all of the reasons why you were just pushed too far. Why you're just a Doolin. You're just a Ross. And that's just how they are. But write this down. Culture is not Lord. Culture did not rise, die for your sins and rise again. Culture will not be the one you stand before on judgment day. Your friends are not Lord. Your friends did not die on the cross for your sins and rise again. And your friends will not be with you when you stand before the Lord on judgment day. Better to do right by your Lord than by your culture or your friends. For no matter how good they make you feel now, they will not be with you on the day that it counts most. Culture and your friends will keep you from being like Jesus if you allow it. So don't allow it. Disciples of Jesus are meant to be like Jesus. And this requires a radical devotion to Jesus that is seen in repentance when we fail to follow Jesus. Let's bow our heads.